Slack is a chat application that is rapidly growing in popularity. The focus of Slack is to create a polished, responsive tool for productivity that cuts down on the emailing, the context switching, and the useless meetings that take place at a typical enterprise. Keith Adams is the chief architect of Slack, and he joins the show to explain how those high-level principles of polish and responsiveness and productivity, how those translate into engineering decisions. Keith previously worked for seven years at Facebook, contributing heavily to the tools that make PHP easier to develop with at scale at Facebook. And Slack's core product is also built with PHP. So Keith discusses the similarities and the differences between scaling Facebook and Slack both from a product perspective and from an engineering perspective. It's a really wide-ranging conversation. Uh, If you're a user of Slack, I'm sure you'll love it. And if you are a software engineer who is architecting any kind of complex application, I'm sure you'll love it as well. This is really a treat, um, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Keith Adams, the chief architect of Slack. Keith Adams is the chief architect at Slack. Keith, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thanks so much, Jeff. Great to be here. Yeah, so I want to start by talking at a high level, kind of even higher than software architecture. What are the principles that you keep in mind when you're thinking about the Slack end user experience? Yeah, interesting. Um, so Slack, I think, is an extremely product-driven place, right? Our, our founder CEO uh, is has a lot of alpha in the product space. Um, I think if you sort of compare us to competing products, a lot of our edges, uh, a lot of our advantages fit and finish. Um, I think that there's a lot of stuff that's non-obvious that goes into that. And, you know, part of the shaggy dog story that the press likes telling about Slack is uh, that Slack was a pivot from a game company. And this is true. Uh, There was a company called TinySpec that had a game called Glitch um, that did, you know, had essentially disappointing architecture. Uh, I'm sorry, I just... uh, that's my Slack. <laughs> um, that, that had a disappointing, you know, amount of traction, and uh, they went to their investors and said, "Hey, this isn't working out." But we built this tool in the process of building this, and maybe companies will pay us for it. And that became Slack. Um, usually, people just sort of tell this story as kind of a quirky, you know, who to thunk it sort of thing. I actually don't think it's totally a coincidence that Slack has been successful in this space, coming from a gaming mentality. Um, so, and we'll get into this in a second here, but in some ways, the architecture of, of Slack resembles that of an online game. Uh, we're kind of creating a, a virtual place for large numbers of people to congregate, and we'd like to do the things that make that virtual place feel real and low latency, um, and th- those end up sort of having some relationship to one another. So, um, at the same time, we also aspire to uh, being a very reliable service. Uh, we have internal goals that are quantitative around that that are very, very aggressive. Uh, and the thinking there is that there's that reliability is kind of an unsung feature, right? That if people come to rely on you uh, because they really feel that you can be trusted technically, uh, that things that are otherwise impossible become possible both for your users and for you. So I yeah. would say uh, sort of latency and reliability end up taking pretty front row seats in our thinking about Slack's both backend and client architectures. Right. So there you're talking about how the desired end user experience translates into particular software architectural principles. 
you know, if you're focused on latency, you're focused on polish, what are the ways, like maybe you could give an example that comes top of mind. How has that translated into a particular decision in the software architecture? Sure. So probably the easiest, most concrete decision here is just the fact that uh, Slack is based around that Slack kind of keeps a client side cache of the whole world, right? Keeps a client side cache of your entire team, essentially. Uh, and then once it's sort of has bootstrapped that cache, it keeps open a WebSocket to a long-lived service that keeps it updated, right? That basically runs a cache coherency protocol with your client over that WebSocket. This is an inconvenient architecture in many ways, right? A gigantic amount of what we've learned about scaling out consumer web services over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years implicitly assumes a request architecture, right? It implicitly assumes that your interaction with the client kind of happens in these bursty, relatively stateless things that can be load balanced and that, you know, if you need to drain activity from somewhere that, you know, you'll be able to drain it in a small number of minutes and so on. Um, Whereas we have, you know, at peak literally millions of users, uh, with open, long-lived TCP IP connections, uh, every one of which is expensive to sever uh, and you know is mediating a stateful relationship between a service and a client. So that makes things a little bit harder. Um, you know, it, could we make an easier service to scale and operate if we just pulled? We definitely could. Um, but the claim then is that you'd have more and more of these kind of textual versions of the kind of glitches you have with bad video conferencing software, right? When you've got a bad link over video conference and you do all that sort of, you know, uh, what were you going to say? Oh, you go ahead. Uh, so I was just going to say, you know, and so on. That kind of rips you out of the conversation you were having. Um, we are trying to avoid that as much as possible. And so we go to some great lengths to do that. Yeah. And there was a great blog post uh, about that back in July where it touched on how, how it gets really expensive to build that client side model for the user to have that crisp experience, um, could you talk a bit about that? Why did why does it get so expensive to build that model? Maybe you could just describe a little bit of the process of what happens when a user loads Slack. Yeah, that's a great that's a great way to jump into this. So one of the ways in which Slack resembles an online game in certain ways is that it kind of has a splash screen while it's loading. Right, uh, it comes up and you know it shows you a nice little quote, something like "My, you look nice today." Um, while something seems to happen. And what's going on while that something seems to happen is that it's basically updating, uh, you know, bootstrapping a cache of the um, of the state of your team. And it's doing this, you know, we have our APIs are documented. Um, you know, you can play with this yourself if you're really curious. The call it's doing is called rtm.start, um, and it's described on our, on our API documentation page. RTM is a, a three-letter acronym we use uh, ubiquitously to mean real-time messaging, and that refers to sort of the part of our stack that is a, a long-lived WebSocket connection. And before you have one of those WebSocket connections, you basically do a REST call to find out a host name and a port you should connect to to do it on. Um, that thing's RTM start. And also, along with, you know, this pair of a host name and a port, it gives you um, essentially a little snapshot of your team. And that's down to the granularity of, you know, these are your preferences with respect to every single channel, um, these are the channels you're subscribed to here, are all of the, you know, username and first name and last name and emails and avatars and so on of everybody on your team. Um, and we need all that to be able to get to the sort of nice, fast, slick part of things where you're just sort of sipping little updates from a cache coherency protocol over that TCP IP connection. And that takes seconds for the teams that most people are using. 
Um, and we're in the process of trying to drive down, you know, the entire distribution of time that that endpoint takes. But it takes a good little while. Um, currently. And, certainly, certainly and also, that's just on. sort of sheer number of bytes. I'm sorry to step on you there. But in terms of why it takes a while, uh, just the sheer number of bytes of information involved are large in the limiting case. Right. And certainly earlier on, the the mobile experience actually differed dramatically from the desktop and in some ways, those two have gotten more similar. But could you describe how the mobile experience differed from des- desktop earlier and how those two experiences have converged towards each other? Yeah, I think it's tough to sort of generalize. Um, the, the mobile clients, uh, so we have a Windows mobile client, which is a, a, you know, it's a real full-class, uh, first-class native app, uh, an iOS one and an Android one. And as I sit here talking to you, the released versions of all these are essentially independent code bases. Um, they're using the Slack API, um, and they are—they have some conceptual similarities, and they have you know some cultural learnings from inside of uh, inside of Slack certainly, but they don't share a ton of code. And so, this kind of dance we're doing—you can you can imagine—you um, know—I've described the state of a client as being a kind of cache of your team. You could imagine that there are a few interesting corner cases here, right? You can imagine that there are sort of non-obvious things that invalidate conceptually distant uh, items in the cache and that your cache is finite capacity and that these might sort of select different strategies or if you're using some storage API, you know, that might have different consequences for what happens when things collide. Um, Yada, yada, yada. Essentially, each of these clients has kind of undergone an independent evolution. And I think historically, one of the differences between the desktop experience and the client-side experience has been uh, that when Slack was a very tiny startup, the people starting it had a lot of experience building web applications. Um, and so there was a sense in which that was an environment where they were able to move faster and be more aggressive. And so they were able to do more performance work on that side as well. Um, also, just the desktop environment is a more resource-rich environment. You, know, you have more memory, have more storage, have more network usually. Um, and, and, you know, better ping times and better bandwidth usually. So in some ways, that's an easier problem. Um, but I think we one of the reasons we've just closed the gap is just that we've, you know, professionalized our mobile native client team. Um, you know, it's no longer a skeleton crew who are, you know, keeping up all hours of the night trying to keep up with the web application. Um, you know, now we've got a bunch of really talented engineers over there who are being creative and applying what they know about their platforms. Well, what I found interesting was that, you know, with the mobile experience, even earlier on the mobile client, or the iOS mobile client at least, I think you talked about this in the blog post, is you can't load everything about your team onto the iOS device because you just don't have as much uh, luxury as you would have on with the desktop experience. Uh, but then with the desktop experience, as time went on, you started to get these really big teams that had really big footprints of stuff that they would need to load when Slack started up. So you actually had to make the desktop client more like the mobile client because you had to get this incremental boot process. You couldn't just say, okay, we're loading the desktop app. We're going to load the entire world into the desktop app because once your team gets big enough... You, 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 there's, there's too much stuff to load, and you can't have a, you know, a Slack with a load time of two minutes or five minutes or however long it was taking. So, so what was that refactoring process? I mean, this sounds like the perfect discussion 
to have with an architect. What is the refactoring that you had to do to accommodate that incremental boot that you work towards to satisfy the larger teams working on Slack? Right. So this is still, by the way, you know, work that we consider in progress. I still think the experience of really big teams could get better. Um, but it's definitely leaps and bounds above where it was, you know, at a given team size, say, a year ago. Um, there have been a lot of, uh, there have been both sort of point improvements and attempts to kind of solve the problem all at once. Um, so point improvements have often included things like, um, you know, just bread and butter tuning, right? So looking at what the server is doing when you load these big teams, looking at what the client's doing. To some extent, it's really tempting uh, when you're building an application like this to accidentally introduce N squared uh, both operations and data types. So to give you a more concrete example, um, all else being equal, the number of channels in a team is roughly proportional to the number of users. Right? It turns out to be true. Um, if you do something that's per, cha- per channel per user, right? so for instance a membership list, um, where you want to communicate to the client, okay, here's all the channels and here's all the people in all the channels, that turns out to be a, a sparse matrix. Right? That turns out to be sort of number of users times number of users that you're sending back. Um, so being able to incrementalize that where you say, okay, you know, can I tolerate finding out the membership of the, of the channel once I switch to the channel or once I need to do some other operation that involves the, the membership of the channel? Uh, and in return for that, I get this sort of quadratic piece of the, of the bootstrapping out of the way. So those kind of big O wins, I think, are uh, kind of just bread and butter, good software engineering on the back end. Um, the blog post you're referring to in July, though, talks about sort of a larger scoped effort um, that's still partly underway, but, you know, is, is out there in production and, and is achieving something right now um, that we described as Slackd. And Slackd, uh, you know, it's, it's Slack, of course, right? So we, it's tempting to call everything Slack this and Slack that. Um, <laughs> But essentially, Slackd was partly um, came out of insights that we got from building uh, XMPP and IRC gateways. So this is sort of a slightly obscure feature, right? But we have teams that, for whatever reason, have some number of people, a lot of times who are very influential, who just will not move off of XMPP or not move off of IRC. You know, maybe the CTO carries a BlackBerry or something, and they just need to use a standard chat client. Um, and in order to do that, we actually operate these kind of stateful client servers in the cloud, right? So the way that it works if you try to set up the IRC bridge, and this is on the admin page of your team, by the way, this is even there for free teams, um, you can set up an IRC server if you want to, and then you can connect with a bog standard IRC client. And the server you're actually connecting to when you connect your IRC client is essentially a Slack client. So it's sort of speaking Slack upwards, and downwards it's speaking IRC to you. Um, and we realized that in some ways that IRC server, you know, if IRC were sort of rich enough to handle all the stuff that Slack does, was the kind of thing we were trying to build. Uh, because that thing doesn't miss anything. It's operated in the cloud. We run it for you. It runs on our servers, not your server. And then you have this nice sort of stateless protocol for a client that attaches. Um, now, of course, IRC clients are, um, you know, a lot more poor than the than the sort of Slack user experience, right? You don't have sort of first-class notions of user avatars and, you know, files and snippets and emojis and reactions and lots of other features that just kind of don't fit that well into the IRC paradigm. But it was hard. We are kind of haunted by the idea that there was something deeply correct that was going on with that IRC server. Uh, and so, you know, Slack itself is a protocol, right? It's partly a REST API, but it's also that web server protocol that I described before, uh, the WebSocket protocol, rather. And, um, 
so the thought kind of came to us, well, what if you had something that behaved like that IRC server, uh, but instead of speaking Slack, uh, instead of speaking IRC downwards, it spoke Slack downwards. So kind of as a relay of sorts. Um, and that's essentially uh, the thing that we're calling Slack D that we've uh, built in the process of rolling out to users. Um, and, you know, no, no, this is still sort of something that we're tuning and figuring out how we want to implement. So I don't want to make any big claims about how wonderful <laughs> it is yet. Um, but there are principled reasons to think that this is a better way to do things. Um, and one of them too, it's like honestly just having nothing to do with any of this discussion about just how slow RTM start is sometimes, uh, is just the edge, right? If we can actually, uh, if we can, you know, do sort of the long haul internet out to some edge pop, uh, and we can load balance you in such a way that you're likely to hit a Slack D instance running in your edge pop, uh, then you're going to have better ping time to Slack effectively. Mm. You know, uh, we we've been talking here about kind of Slack and uh, well, we ha- certainly haven't been talking about it in partially connected contexts. Um, and it, you know, I think of the partially connected experience as having become increasingly important over time. You see really big companies like Facebook and. Google obviously focusing a lot more on the offline experience as well as the partial connection experience. How so? When you're thinking about things like uh, dealing with large teams and the problems inherent there, and then you know dealing with IRC, dealing with people who are still working from within IRC and trying to make that Slack compatible. How do you take into account the partially connected? use case i mean because because that seems like a yet another case that can be i'm I'm sure there's some overlap between these other kind of edge casey type of scenarios but i'm sure there's also some stuff that's orthogonal so how so as an architect what are the things that you're thinking about when you're considering the partially connected user to the same extent that you're considering these other types of use cases yeah that's a wonderful uh, in some ways a wonderful transition from slack d2 because uh, it is part of that story in the long run as well but um you know, the idea of a heavyweight connection that takes seconds to bootstrap uh, is obviously has some fundamental at oddsness with the reality of mobile environments, right, where there basically is network weather. Um, it's perfectly normal for people to want to consume Slack on their, you know, subway ride into work, and they're going to pop in and out of tunnels and, you know, in and out of network radius. Um, and they're going to expect to be able to sort of send messages and have them buffered until they're ready to be sent. They're going to expect to be able to catch up on whatever portion of uh, maybe not completely up-to-date things uh, they're able to catch up on. And, you know, Facebook Messenger and SMS clients and email clients and everything else are setting the expectation that that stuff should just work. Uh, and we're not there yet on any of our mobile platforms, honestly. I think this is something that we've got a bunch of work to do still. Um, and in terms of uh, how this why I'm bullish about Slack D being an enabling technology for that. Uh, it just basically reconnection is, you know, not a edge case in that use case, right? So if you're kind of popping in and out of, uh, you know, losing Wi-Fi, getting Wi-Fi, you know, losing connectivity entirely, uh, the story that you're just going to have a TCP IP connection open all the time and things are going to be a little sluggish unless you happen to have that tether um, is just far less viable. So, that's going to involve sort of some deep reworking of the clients, um, you know, all sort of five of them, depending on how you want to count. Um, and we're proceeding, you know, it's, it's there on our product roadmaps and we're trying to make it better. Um, but this isn't something that I'm actually, you know, that I think we can rest in our laurels with yet. I don't think we're best in class uh, with the disconnected experience yet. 
Mm. What are some other ways that Slack handles graceful degradation? Because uh, you know, this seems like it factors into the overarching mission of having a lot of polish and you know, uh, providing the right feeling of latency, even when perhaps things are worse than they appear from uh, you know, looking at your Slack client. What are the ways that you can get graceful degradation around a messaging product when the user's connection is flaky? Yeah, well, there are different, uh, you know, there's different kinds of degradation for one thing, right? So whenever, so all Slack, I probably should have led with this a little bit earlier. All Slack clients are talking to Slack sort of through two different backends at the same time in a way. Um, there's the RTM one that I've spent a lot of time on so far, but there's also a fairly rich uh, REST API, right? So there's a part of sort of Slack's backend that looks a lot like a LAMP stack app, right? And is in many ways a scaled up LAMP stack app in the same way that Facebook is a scaled up LAMP stack app. Um, and that part of things, you know, you're talking to with posts and gets, uh, you know, sending JSON bodies and receiving JSON responses. And um, over in that part of the world, the kinds of problems that we run into and the kinds of operational difficulties we run into, uh, you know, are more like your kind of classic consumer web scenarios, right? We have periods of overload. We have things where uh, we, we do something silly in the clients and they all reconnect at the same time. Or, um, you know, there, there's, if there's a long list of things, right? Just sort of overload scenarios, in-cast problems, um, hotspots in, in sharded tiers and things like that. Um, so the set of things that uh, are degrading the, the REST API, uh, to some extent, the world has this great bag of tricks for dealing with, right? The... Uh, you know, the practice of people building web front ends and to some extent mobile front ends now that, you know, a lot of mobile apps talk in the same way to their back ends uh, has developed a lot of tricks for this, right? People retry, for instance. And then when you realize that, you know, you're attacking the back end in lockstep, you, you know, retry with random exponential back off or, um, you know, you hide certain amount of latency or you, you know, distinguish between I made a connection and it failed and I couldn't make a connection at all. And you sort of assume couldn't make a connection at all is more likely to mean network weather than that all of Slack is down. Uh, and so you treat that differently. Um, on the other hand, the ability to, to actually buffer things and then send them later um, is a relatively straightforward way of dealing with, you know, disconnectivity to the messaging part of things. Um, right? So the real-time stream, if I type something to you just as I'm hopping into the elevator on my way downstairs... Um, we shouldn't pester the user about the fact that, you know, we weren't able to send it right now. Of course you weren't able to send it right now. You'll be able to send it in 10 seconds. It's fine. Now, and we don't always do a perfect job of this, by the way. This, this still irritates me, and we still talk about it a lot, uh, about how to do a better job of this. Uh, in the limit, of course, like, there are depressing negative results in the field of distributed systems that limit what we can hope to, to guarantee, um, you know, the cap theorems and so on of the world. Uh, one of the reasons that in practice this isn't biting us that hard, by the way, uh, is that one of the big architectural assumptions that we make in in designing, operating, and engineering Slack is that it's for humans, right? So, you know, for instance, you could imagine some clever human being deciding that they're going to use Slack to build a, a distributed file system, right, or to build uh, to build Kafka on top of it, right? They're going to make a bunch of channels and I'll dump messages into those channels and, you know, have some high volume client that slurps things out of it and assumes really strong semantics and the things that go into it and so on. Uh, we openly don't expect that to be the usual use case. Um, obviously like we want to expand and encompass as many use cases as we possibly can. 
Uh, and we do support people having, you know, relatively chatty bots that dump things into channels uh, because sometimes people just retrieve things with search. But, you know, if you're using this as a logging service, it's essentially abuse, right? And you're going to start running into to rate limits and things like that. Um, and it turns out that the way that humans communicate with one another has a lot of redundancy. So, for instance, like to make this less abstract, right? If you and I are in the same channel, and uh, we type a message to each other, you know, we type messages at essentially, from network perspective, the same time, and send them at the same time. Um, the odds are excellent that there's a bunch of human stuff we did that disambiguates what actually happened a little bit. Um, and so, uh, and, and the way that things work right now, this actually isn't possible for this to happen, but to take an example of something that would be an acceptable semantic for, you know, if we were talking about designing a new message server architecture, I think it'd be an acceptable semantic that some users temporarily see it in one order and others temporarily see it in another order. Um, as, as long as there's some canonical persistent order that it actually got indexed in search with and that you can, you know, that you'll see with the next time you reload it and so on. Uh, the thinking there is basically we're not trying to serve robots, right? We're trying to serve human beings, trying to communicate with other human beings. And sometimes one-way communication from machines to human beings um, but sort of closed loop, machine to machine, operating some big high volume mechanism, we're not going to be the right system for that. Well, yeah, and you know what you said about the potential for out of order messages, whether or not that's feasible in Slack. I feel like most sequences of messages, probably not all sequences of messages, but most sequences of messages, a human using Slack can probably detect. Oh the the ordering of these two messages does not make sense. I'm going to assume that something got messed up in the interweb pipes and there's some reason why these things are out of order. Um, well, it, it, I actually think like in this particular case where we were actually writing at the same time, you'd have a hard time even telling that there was something funny going on because it means that they were both sort of caused by something temporarily before them, right? So, uh, you know, the fact that your MD5 sum of the log of messages is a little different than my MD5 sum of the log of messages isn't some reason to, to freak out completely and, you know, throw our cash away and start over from scratch. Um, so that's, you know, I'm not actually using MD5 for any of this, to be clear, but it's like sometimes people talk about, you know, trying to say a channel is a log and can we treat it as sort of a, you know, Merkle hash, a, a little Merkle tree of, of updates to the log. Um, there's not like, um, and to be clear, like if, yeah, if there was a chance to provide stronger semantics, we may take it too, right? But uh, we're willing to relax semantics to the point where as long as there's a kind of human scale causal consistency, right? So to, to a granularity of hundreds of milliseconds, nothing happened in an impossible order that any user sees um, is good enough. And, a, and a, even strong, a stronger example of this, and this really, I think, can happen a little bit right now. A strong example of this is just stuff in different channels, um, right? If there are, you know, if there's a conversation happening in this channel and another channel simultaneously, which is pretty pretty normal in an active team, we're not going to try and do incredibly strong things to make sure that, like, no possible client would see interleavings of those channels out of order, you know? Um, the thinking is that people have organized conversations in the channels for some reason, and that sort of causality across channels is not some super important thing to preserve. So you worked at Facebook for seven years, and I, you know, I think of Facebook, like Facebook newsfeed at least, it's, you know, consistency in terms of the order of things in your newsfeed 
probably not super important if you see the dog picture before the the Donald Trump news story you know getting these two things in the right order is probably not super important there are obviously elements of Facebook that need to be strongly consistent but how what how does the experience your experience at Slack differ from Facebook when it comes to these consistency requirements and these ordering of events yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of the, the relationship of our users to our product is really different than the relationship that users have to the Facebook product usually. You know, just limiting ourselves to sort of core newsfeed for a second. Obviously, Facebook's in messaging and calls and all kinds of things, right? Um, but limiting ourselves to just the, co- the core newsfeed, um, one of the things that uh, Facebook essentially has on its side is that you're going there um, with some expectation that you don't know what you're going to see. Um, and I think also there's a level of asynchrony to the way that you consume that product that's very different from Slack. So there's an assumption that what you're seeing is kind of roughly timely, but there's no claim, uh, you're not going to use your Facebook news feed to stay on top of like an operational fire that your coworkers are fighting in real time, right? So, uh, and I think actually a lot of things, uh, that are unique about Slack do boil down to this conjunction of large numbers of users and real time. I think that's actually pretty unusual. Uh, if you look at the sheer number of users, obviously, you know, Facebook Messenger has many times more users than we do. Um, but a given thread inside of Messenger, you know, usually doesn't have thousands of humans in it. Um, it'd be, it would take you a long time to add all those people to the two field, right? Um, and, and it's just sort of not what it's oriented for. It has some group communication features, but it's not oriented towards sort of long-term group communication. Um, and that turns out to be different enough that the off-the-shelf solutions tend to be less applicable. Um, So a lot of times I find myself when I'm talking to people that have a background in sort of consumer web right now or sort of big scale-out, you know, back-end services, um, I spend a lot of energy kind of explaining the real-time part of things and a lot of time kind of explaining uh, that latency matters here and that there are that we're willing to sort of do radical things to make sure that you're getting messages in a timely and predictable way. Also, I think one of the things that I have just really enjoyed, so I've been here at Slack for about seven months so far, and one of the things that, this is probably uh, you know a honeymoon effect that we can't count on having forever, to be clear, but people are really positive about Slack, right? When I encounter users in the wild and people say, oh, actually, I use Slack, um, they often have something really nice to say right after that. And that's, you know, I I thought for a while about why that was so, frankly, different from my experience at Facebook. Um, At Facebook, my experience was usually kind of, I'd say, I worked there, and people sort of say, (laughs) oh, okay. Um, And then they'd often have, like, a complaint, right? They'd have, like, a little bug report, or they'd be like, well, why did you guys change the font in this thing? Or why did you move this, like, thing around? And, of course, you know, typically I'd have no idea what the actual reason we'd made some small change to the product was, right? Um... And I think there's lots of different reasons that is. Partly it's just that, like, eventually people start taking you for granted. um, And so they just sort of, uh, their relationship to it kind of takes more of the core value of the product as a given. Um, But I do also think that one of the things that's different is that uh, Slack's relationship to to you and your data is a little more straightforward. Um, So, and I'll, I'll say this, like, to be really, really clear about this. Most of people, you know, the sort of pop culture caricature of how ruthless and Machiavellian Facebook's decision making is, is wildly false. Um, I have, you know, I felt like a weekly basis where we made some decision to just leave a ton of money on the table because it wasn't consistent with 
the ethical standards we'd hope we'd have. However, um, people don't have a strong intuitive feeling for that because the business that Facebook is in is so complex, right? Uh, people have a very, you know, the, the human being on the street who's not paying a ton of attention to the industry probably has a very nebulous idea about how whatever it is they do with Facebook turns into money that, fa- you know, to checks that Facebook cashes, right? Because it is really complicated and it kind of involves the whole world economy and, you know, well, their behavior on Facebook and their behavior in other places and, you know, it's just complicated. Um, whereas with Slack, our story is essentially we make this thing. If you like it, you pay us for it. If you don't, you don't. Um, and what we're going to use your data for is, you know, to let you search your channels and nothing else. Um, now, of course, like I'm not making, you know, this this contains forward-looking statements or whatever, right? Like I'm not, uh, you know, please don't think of me as indemnifying anything here. But I think it's just a much simpler uh, model for people to think about their relationship to our company. Um, we make something. If you like it, you can pay us. Um, there's not sort of a weird third party that involves, you know, the entire world economy. Um, and also your data is, uh, you know, part of the reason our business model works is that people have faith that we're not going to share your data with your competitors, for instance, or with uh, Twitter or with uh, the whole world, right? Um, and it's, you know, less clear exactly what the what the guarantees are about uh, where the boundaries around your data are with, you know, most consumer web objects that you interact with. Certainly true. Um, so what about scaling challenges? What are the other scaling differences you've seen between Facebook and Slack? Yeah. So one of the differences, uh, so the notion of a team on Slack, right, which is what we kind of internally call, a lot of people uh, outside of the company call them Slacks, um, right? And a team is kind of a collection of users and channels uh, that are together for to accomplish some goal, presumably. Uh but teams are uh, units of sort of authentication. They're units of, uh, of how people interact with the product in a way that doesn't have a direct analogy in most other things you use on the internet. Um, and one of the big choices that we made early on, I think, was that we were willing to sacrifice um, some ease of scale out for being able to contain team failures. So... If, uh, you know, there are pieces of our infrastructure essentially that are team isolated and we still are able to uh, take a particular customer that's either having a performance problem themselves or causing performance problems for other teams and users uh, and isolate pieces of their of their infrastructure, isolate pieces of their back end. Um, and that's a little unusual, right? If it's not sort of the, you know, big consistent hash ring and you, you know, just project onto it with an ID and then that's the shard you talk to for everything way of thinking of things. Um, and the reason we do that is that fault isolation and performance isolation and also um, being able to to diagnose problems that are reported from only one team uh, is a really valuable thing for us. Um, so we don't want it to be the case that, you know, the people, you know, if something, if some bot that uh, somebody wrote at a particular customer starts freaking out and starts dumping a ton of data into some channel somewhere, uh, we don't want that to sort of subtly mess up the experience that dozens of other teams are having, right? We want to be able to kind of point to, okay, here's the piece of infrastructure that that's harming. Here's what we can do to, to mitigate that exactly. Either, you know, we might rate limit, we might actually isolate it. Um, so the attitude towards failure isolation and diagnostics is a little bit different. And I think in part that's because we have, you know, real support. 
um, you know, for the people that pay us money, we have human beings that they can talk to. Um, we have, you know, actual Zendesk tickets that we actually look at with our own eyes and try and make sense of. And so if, you know, somebody is pre- reporting a performance problem, for instance, we might try and say, well, okay, is it this team only? Uh, and if the answer to that, if, if sort of trying to figure out whether it's this team only involves looking at, you know, thousands and thousands of machines and gigantic sort of fleets of very complex distributed systems, um, that's not always the best experience for people. So if you're trying to avoid the noisy neighbor team issue, you want to keep any team problems isolated from some other team that might be perhaps co-located on the same hardware what does the architectural isolation model for different teams look like? Yeah, so that's actually sort of something we're still in the middle of evaluating um, and and to some extent evolving. Sort of Slack classic, I mean, a lot of times it's easiest to understand how things got the way that they are by sort of starting with, you know, the dawn of time, right? So at time t equals zero, right, back when we're first pivoting away from, from making an online game and we're making you know, this Slack application. At the dawn of time, uh, there was a small number of, of database shards, right? And they're running, they're MySQL uh, master-master replication pairs. Um, so there's a small number of these shards that are team shards. Uh, there is a complete map from team IDs to which shard you rely on, right? So we can put any team on any shard. And uh, there's a metadata store, uh, metadata store maps teams to shards, and then so at the dawn of time, you know, when you do an RTM start in this world, uh, what that looks like is you go to sort of the metadata store that everything is is constantly hammering, and say, okay, which shard does this team live on? It comes back and says shard three, and then you go out to shard three, then you pull the row that corresponds to this team, and now you're ready to start doing the rest of the stuff that that RTM start kicks off, right? Um, similarly. On the server, on the real-time side of the house, we operated a fleet, you know, and we still operate a fleet of Java servers. That's a bunch of code that we wrote ourselves called the message server. And this thing is basically just a message bus. And it knows about some plurality of teams, right? Each one of these things is sitting on some port number. It knows about some number of teams. Um, you're co-located on that message server with some other teams, some neighbors of yours. But there is one message server that corresponds to your team. So... You'd give, you'd give back to the user in RTM start, okay, here's your WebSocket server, go talk over there for the real-time part of things. Um, and that was kind of the rough sketch of things. So, you know, almost all of the critical pieces of things here were perfectly team sharded. Um, there's now a bunch of services uh, and caches and other stateful layers that complicate this picture, but you can still kind of make out the rough outlines of, of the picture I just outlined here. Um, so, for instance, we have a memcached tier with several memcached tiers, and those memcached tiers are partitioned, but for the most part, they're not partitioned by team, they're partitioned by purpose. Right? They're partitioned by which kind of keys go into the memcached store. Um, so, with memcached, we did make a, a decision that um, we would sort of relax some of our strong team isolation for now. And for now, it seems like that's working out okay. It seems like the problems we're having with memcached that uh, are occasional and sort of systemic um, we're able to remediate in global ways, and that makes, you know, it seems like it's working. Uh, meanwhile, in front of those message servers, we've stuck a bunch of services that uh, that are in, in between your client and the Java server I just described that's per team. Uh, so nowadays we have some, you know, DNS points you to a load balancer, 
that load balancer uh, then sends you to a service that we call the message proxy. And message proxy uh, is not doesn't have a team partitioned character. Right? It doesn't actually care which team you're part of. It doesn't know much about the application. It's doing a couple things. It's basically terminating long haul internet. So it you know terminates compression, terminates SSL. Um, that way we can run it in edge pop. And so you don't have a you know a round trip to the east coast of the U.S. every time you want to do an SSL connection, um, and it's also keeping open connections. It, you know, it's it's an important part of uh, handling occasional glitches with the message servers, right? So there's a non-trivial network span between a message proxy and a message server that actually you know is holding onto your team, and if we just completely dropped your connection every time that connection glitched out a little bit. Uh, then message proxy would, you know, then you'd be having a bad time, be reconnecting a lot, doing these expensive operations. Um, so there's uh, a what we call a fast reconnect protocol where there's actually state in the message server um, where when the message server comes back up, it can sort of prove the message proxy. It's really the same message server it was before. Uh, and then the message proxy can let you keep your WebSocket server connection open. Um, that was a fairly, you know, you know, and also SlackD and also... Um, you know, we're increasingly looking at more scale-out style data stores for some pieces of the application where that makes sense. Um, so it's not like a perfect religion around, you know, everything must be perfectly partitionable from team to team. Um, it would be, you know, if I want, if you wanted to make some sort of really ironclad guarantee that absolutely nothing that team A ever does can ever harm anything team B does, um, that's not a goal that we're you know, that we've decided is worth prioritizing right now. So it's a little bit of a compromise between kind of the consumer web style, you know, scale out everything to the sky and just mindlessly, you know, just look for hotspots um, and perfect team isolation. And sort of a compromise between we get pretty good team isolation in practice and pretty good scale out most of the time, the occasional manual intervention. Yeah. So I'm very curious about search. At a high level, how does search work on Slack and how is that architected? Yeah. So um, this is sort of a high-velocity chunk of the of the system. There's a team that uh, Noah Weiss in New York City is leading. Uh, we call Slack Learning and Infrastructure, uh, uh, Slack, excuse me, Slack Learning and Intelligence, or SLI. Um, and they're busy, you know, revolutionizing the way search works. Uh, but uh, at a, let me do the same thing I just did, sort of with other parts of the back end. How did it used to work? Right? How did it work at first? The way it worked at first was that we had some number of solar shards. And your team mapped you to a solar shard, right? So just in your database, that same database row that told us uh, which SQL server your team lived on, it also tell us which solar shard you live on. Um, the process of indexing messages is kind of interesting, right? So solar um, is sometimes high latency, especially if it's under load to actually do updates um, or if it's an old index. So we don't want to have you, you know, when you hit send and you're in the middle of, uh, you know, a quick back and forth. We don't want to sort of sit there and throb and drool on ourselves while we do the search indexing necessarily. So we actually defer that work of indexing messages a little bit. And if you kind of, if you look at Slack uh, carefully enough from the client side, you can actually figure this out, right? If you type lots and lots of messages in sort of one window and do search queries in another window, there's a human perceptible lag between us writing those messages and the queries actually showing up in search. Uh, that's because it's going through uh, an async job deferral mechanism that we just call the job queue. Uh, and the job queue is um, actually another interesting piece of infrastructure in that it's uh, shared, right? so it's not very team isolated. 
Um, we call it the job queue, but it's confusing because it's actually a large set of queues and there are different rules and priorities and, uh, you know, um, rate limits that apply to those different queues. But basically we have Redis backing a bunch of these queues. You drop a JSON description of the job you want into Redis, you know, into the appropriate queue in Redis. And there's a big pool of asynchronous workers out there who are, you know, looking for interesting stuff to pull off the queue, um, modulo this set of rules around rate limits and stuff. Uh, and, and message indexing is a major one of those. Um, so when we type a message to you, the sort of full sequence of, act, of actions here is we send that message up through our WebSocket connection to the message server. Message server sort of makes a side call to our, our application logic. It sort of makes a side call to actually persist it uh, because our application logic is what knows what database shard you're on, knows you know what the schema is for the messages table and all that good stuff. It persists it. The message server uh, actually amplifies your write, right? So it you know sends your write to everybody else who happens to be connected to your team right then. Uh, and then from the user's point of view, the the real time part of it's succeeded, right? From the user's point of view, you you've sent it, and that's true. You've reliably sent it. The application logic side of things that that writes the database uh, row also enqueues an asynchronous job, and some number of you know seconds, or if things are on fire, minutes, or you know heaven help us, hours later, um, we will actually pull that job off the queue and have a conversation with Solar where we tell Solar to update its index. Uh, and the semantics around that job queue thing are uh, are basically we will retry it some number of kind of job specific times, uh, but it's at most once. So it will you know it's possible if it keeps failing uh, that it'll you know fail out up to ten times or something and then it'll never happen. But if it has a chance of actually happening one of those ten times, we'll give it a shot ten times. Examples of things that actually do fail kind of for reasons totally out of our control are you know we have. Uh, a feature where you can make a, a, a channel subscribe to an RSS feed, right? We get a lot of people putting misformatted RSS feeds into our job queue, right? So if we just keep parsing that XML and it won't parse, it's probably never going to parse and the job's going to fail. Uh, another one is just unfurling URLs, right? So when we type, you know, HTTP colon slash slash something or other in a Slack channel, you're probably used to it making that little, uh, the little box with sort of a thumbnail and a title and a snippet and stuff like that. Uh, we actually have to go out and curl that endpoint to figure out what that should look like. Uh, and that happens to the job queue also. And, you know, if just because the, the site's under load or is having some trouble responding before our curl timeout or something like that doesn't mean that we never want to unfurl it. Um, so we'll retry that a few times before throwing our hands up and saying, okay, it's just chat. We'll sort of degrade to IRC in this case. Yeah, so we, we've had uh, a show recently about schedulers, and this was talking about schedulers in the very much in the abstract, we're talking about schedulers at the load balancing level, at the container orchestration level, all these other types of scheduling, and the job queue that you're describing sounds like another type of scheduling. Yeah, so how does that work? Because I imagine there are certain things in the job queue that you want to really prioritize and other things that like you don't care so much about, like uh, making a little um, you know link somebody has pasted in look pretty is a little less important than other things you might have, like indexing search properly. Right. So I've had, um, I've had a lot of ex- like experience in the being uh, in the cube next to somebody working on a scheduler in my career. <laughs> uh, it usually hasn't been me working on the scheduler. And uh, this is like a, a problem area that attracts really, really bright people. 
uh, in part because it's this rare problem that is incredibly practically important and feels like it should be tractable. Right? It feels it never like goes the, away. yeah, it never. It's for some reason it's not solved yet, and yet it seems like it's this thing that just you know you can write. It's like garbage collection, right? You, I can explain garbage collection to you, uh, you know, with a mathematical formalism that actually captures a gigantic amount of all there is to say about about garbage collection, right? It really is this graph theory problem, uh, and similarly, you know, scheduling things really is kind of this bin packing problem, right? Um, in practice. I have seen more success with kind of folk schedulers than I have with, you know, really beautiful, I got my PhD from somewhere fancy schedulers uh, in, in these kind of distributed asynchronous settings. So you're saying it's round robin? Uh, so, well, so it's not round robin per se, right? It's actually just sort of best effort. Uh, you know, it's hard to characterize exactly what it's doing, but if you boil it down far enough, um, each one of the work, you know, we've got some set of workers. Each worker opportunistically pulls the head of some set of cues in a breadth-first way. And if you want to build prioritization on top of that, uh, you can change the population of workers and which cues they're looking at, right? So, for instance, if, like, let's say that you want to make a performance-isolated set of cues, right? You want to provide really good service to this set of, of asynchronous jobs. Um, you just change the set of workers, you know, change the set of cues that workers are paying attention to, um, and make sure that there's adequate resources paying attention to the head of the queues, you know, whose timeliness you care about. And the distribution of response times will go down really, really quickly and do so a lot more reliably than, um, you know, than some sort of centralized system that, that build, you know, that buys into all these things. So I, I'm sorry that like I sound kind of hand wavy about this. This is something I'm sort of realizing I actually have a strong opinion about that I haven't had to articulate very well yet. Sure. Um, it's not that Mesos doesn't work. It totally does, right? <laughs> like, I, I believe it. I get it. Right? There is science here, and I'm not against that science. Um, it's just that it requires that you buy into a particular framework that may or may not be a good fit for the rest of your software stack uh, in return for being able to, to work that way. So, right. for example... So you don't need a two-layer scheduler for the job queue on the Slack client. Uh, well, so clients aren't involved in this, by the way, right? This is all kind of, this is all backend stuff here. Okay. Um, so the Slack clients don't, you know, aren't aware of what happens synchronously and asynchronously in any terribly rich way, other than that, you know, the async stuff, if they have something to do, they'll get some notification through the real-time channel rather than through, um, you know, waiting for it on a, on a post or a get. Oh, so sorry. Does, so does the user have a collection of cues or does the team have a collection of cues? Slack has a collection of cues. It's actually, Slack. this is one of the, the few things that's actually just sort of scale out. Um, so our set of cues is actually global. Um, I, I have this kind of all paged in today because I happen to, we're in the, the process of moving uh, our PHP code over to HHVM, which is the, the PHP engine that I built at Facebook with a team of other uh, very, very bright people. Um, oh, wow. And it was a lot of fun to work on. Um, the benefits we're getting from this are a bunch of performance wins. So our web tier is on it already. It's a lot faster. Uh, but also it gets us access to Hack, which is a very nice language that's basically a gradually typed extension of PHP. Um, and, it, you know, PHP is a very flawed language and Hack is actually, you know, just a really wonderfully beautiful... Uh, it's surprising the degree to which Hack is actually like a pleasant language that I would choose to use given that it's operating in the constraint that it has to be sort of incrementally a change on PHP, right? Hmm. Anyhow, um, 
the reason I've got this sort of page in a little bit is because we want to be able to use our application logic from our job queue, from our tier of sort of things that are going to run these things, and we want to be able to do it in a way that's fairly seamless. So our actual kind of execution engine, the actual you know leaf worker, the thing that actually pulls these queues, is in PHP, right? And we wrote it ourselves. And at first you sort of encounter that and you're like, oh, wow, it seems weird that we're solving this problem again from scratch. Um, but I think the reason that keeps happening is that the sort of the benefit of environmental integration is so much higher than the benefit of uh, having sort of hard scheduler problems solved for you automatically in practice that I don't think it's actually as stupid as it seems. Um, wow. So, I mean, the and, and to kind of underscore this a little bit more, right, no matter what your scheduler does, you're going to have to operate the thing. Like, no matter what your scheduler does, you know, the things that are going to cause outages are storms of work, right? And places where you made a fork bomb and put it in the job queue accidentally and so on. And it's very hard to imagine, you know, and, and also just running out of capacity, right? Just you grew fast and you forgot to kind of grow that part of the system quickly. So um, in some ways, like the hard parts about operating job queues, I think are, are better tackled through sort of visibility and tooling and operability and uh, getting good at deploying fixes to bugs quickly and fitting well into the rest of your architecture then through using some, uh, you know, very abstract, very powerful engine that sort of, you know, solves the problem of, say, orchestration. Well, it's, it's pretty cool that you are getting to do this at Slack because you built this HHVM stuff at Facebook and you made PHP sing there. And it sounds like that's exactly what slack needs right now but yeah i think it, i think it's sort of one of those funny things where history doesn't quite repeat but it rhymes um you know slack's problems are different uh and it's in a different business and it's making a very different product at a very different time uh but i actually you know i give i have a talk that i give every once in a while called taking php seriously about um the sort of and usually this is sort of to the programming language community right so the pl community is pretty confident that like they know a thing or two about what makes languages good and bad and according to that rubric php is a bad language and i understand that arg those arguments pretty well and they're not wrong exactly right the sort of flaws that they highlight really are dangerous about the language but there's a couple things that it, uh you know and yet we live in this world where interesting and super successful things keep getting built in php and that should give us pause right so is the claim here really that Slack would be more successful if it were written in Haskell, right? Do we, do we really, really think that? I mean, you know, like, yes, we can say Haskell's a good language and PHP is a bad language. But when we say that, are we actually claiming that, uh, that Haskell would have been a better medium to do this in? And I think we aren't really. And the reason that feels so funny to say is because uh, what PHP has going for it is a set of things that are also very important that are harder to kind of capture at the language level, right? So PHP has um, a handling of state, handling of concurrency, and handling of the developer workflow that turn out to be right, right? So it handles, and what, what's right about its handling of state is every web request starts with an empty universe. And if you want to have there be state, you're welcome to have there be state, but you have to do that through a library call. It's not going to be a first-class PHP object, right? Uh, you have to save it in a file or save it in a database or save it in memcache or save it in Redis or something, but it's going to be across a sort of persistence boundary that's explicit. 
Um, so you can kind of carve out the piece of your application that's stateful. Its handling of concurrency, uh, you know, the sort of popular impression is, oh, PHP is a single-threaded language. That's kind of true, but uh, in other sense, it's, uh, it's the web request is the unit of concurrency, right? It has concurrency. It has concurrency by curling to localhost. Um, and you can actually build, you know, real shared nothing uh, compute frameworks around that. Um, and it's true that there are that not every possible kind of parallel program is sensible to write this way. I wouldn't want to write a, a Java virtual machine this way. But there is a large class of the kinds of things that you want to do in interactive timeframes on the web that this is totally sufficient for. Um, and finally, just the developer workflow of having short feedback loops, right? You save and you reload the page. Or in the case of hack, you save and you see your type errors without having to type a compile. Um, that turns out to be a really important property of the language that actually, you know that is built into the, the structure of the language in a relatively deep way. It's hard to go back into Rust or something and give it exactly that kind of property. Um, and so, you know, I, I have a sort of grudging respect for the, the ecological fitness of PHP, right? It sort of is biologically fit for the, perp, for the niche that it's carved out. And that turns out not to be due to design, but so what? It's still sort of great at what it does, even though nobody knew why it was going to be great before it was great. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's a great place to wrap up. Keith, thanks for coming on the show. I want to respect your time. Uh, I've really appreciated talking to you about Slack's architecture. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.